We are in a season, a commercial season, where because of last week's high point of civic religion, the celebration of the Super Bowl, the best that people have got were put on display for us to see. And I want to think with you this morning about a couple of different commercials and how they relate to what Peter is telling a church here that he describes as aliens and strangers, as people undergoing a kind of life that might not make sense on the surface for people who are adjoined to the reigning king. There's a commercial that some of you have seen that starts out in what could be any of a number of affluent, shady, oak tree lined neighborhoods. There's a nice house and there's a boy emerging from around the corner. He's just picked up an errant baseball apparently and his father is urging him on. All things come back to baseball and his father is telling him what a good job he's just done. How his form is coming together and the boy makes a throw to his father in the front yard as Fathers and sons sometimes do, and the boy, well, he makes a bad throw, and it rolls across the driveway, and the father is patient. You're getting it, son, as he rolls over to this ball that is bumped up to the tire of a new Volkswagen Passat. And then the father says, all right, you're getting it. And then he says something like, what you want to do is you want to get your elbow out and your shoulder down, and you want to step like this, and then the father proceeds to make a throw that looks something like what a flamingo and a giraffe mixed would do if they were trying to throw a baseball. And you quickly realize as he throws this ball in something that looks nothing like a throw, and the kind of throw that should his son replicate it will be mocked mercilessly all the rest of his days. And the narrator of the commercial says, Pass down something to him that he can use. Did I notice the facade in the driveway? The facade that's going to last for the next 30 years? Even when he's driving, his life is going to be changed because he can drive that facade. Don't pass down your silly throw. Pass down this facade. Well, it makes me think, what are we passing down? One of the things the Bible is very concerned about is the transmission of values, the passing along from one generation to the next of our faith, of the things that are most important, the things that are most true, the things that are most good, the things that are right to believe, the ways in which we're to configure our life under the sun. And it's easy sometimes for us to forget that we are always passing something another down. Whether we're trying or not, we're passing something along. And this is for parents with the young. This is for grandparents with their grandchildren. But this is also for teammates to their teammates, for roommates with their roommates, for people in school with your friends. We're always passing along a certain kind of life. And it's easy sometimes to think, if you look at it or if you ask your kids, hey, kids, what are you learning from us? And maybe they'd say, well, we're learning learning how to get really mad at a ref. Or we're... We've learned from you where to find the best bargains on cool jeans. We 
pass along all sorts of things. Some things are helpful, some things are not. But it's important today as we're thinking about calling. Because we're thinking about this whole idea that we're people who have been summoned into existence by the call of God. It's almost a synonymous term with Christian in the Bible. It's those who have been called into fellowship with Jesus Christ. And Peter is talking to people who have been called. He starts out by saying, as you come to him. He's called you. This living stone rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to Him. You're being built into this house. And he says some people have rejected this call. They've rejected this Jesus and it's going to not be so good for them. But he says, but not you. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. And as... Peter tells these people who they are, and we get to overhear it and think about who we are. I want us to think in terms of this. What are you passing down? Or what are you passing along? What kind of life is coming out of you to the people that you're near? And if we're listening to Peter, who tells us what our vocation is on planet Earth, he says, we are a royal priesthood. Like, oh man... That doesn't sound so good. A priesthood? Wearing a clerical collar and walking around having to be all polite to everybody? That's not what he's talking about. Thank the Lord. See, when he talks about being a priesthood, a chosen people, this is, this is Garden of Eden type language. That God has placed people in the garden and He said, here, you're going to represent me on the planet earth see what you can do with the place make it clear to people what it's like when god is running things what kind of beauty comes out and then when you notice it when you notice things being ordered and put together and you notice flourishing bring it back to god like a priest would in praise bring it back to god in acknowledgement that he had a hand in all of this see a A priest is someone who stands between God and people. Between God and all that He has created. And so, when God selects the Israelites out of their bondage, out of their misery, where they're crying out in Egypt because they're being treated so mercilessly. So many horrible and despicable things have happened to them and they're the objects of God's pity. He's concerned about them. He calls them out. They get to the desert of Sinai. And he says to them, You are going to be my treasured possession. Peter's borrowing from this here. You're going to be my treasured possession. You're going to be my secret stash. Out of all the nations of the earth, you're going to be my favored nation. You're going to be a kingdom of priests for me. See, one of the things about Israel's vocation all along was they were supposed to be this light to the world. They were supposed to show the world what God was like. They were supposed to introduce the world to God. They were supposed to be a nation in whom people were able to look at and say, Oh, that's what human life is supposed to be. That that's what, a, that's what economic practices are supposed to look like. They're not supposed to make everybody feel horrible at the end of the day. They're supposed to make people feel dignified. This is what marriages are supposed to look like. They're not supposed to let one person feel like they're being swallowed up by the forgetfulness and the contempt of another. They're supposed to be mutual 
love and respect going on here. Oh, this is what's supposed to happen with people who don't have anybody. They've got the community of faith. Orphans and widows and aliens and strangers. See, they were supposed to be this kingdom of priests who showed the world what God was like and who offered back to God all the goodness they had noticed in praise and sacrifice and in obedience. And so as you think about that, I want to think about a few things that Peter would urge us to pass along as we think about the vocation of being a priest, a royal priesthood. And the first is this. Pass down this very important virtue of spending a lot of time looking up. Looking up. He says, here's what. You're a chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, people belonging to God, that you may declare the praise of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful life. Part of your calling is to be a people of praise. You declare praise. The Bible is full of this sort of thing. You alone are God. Praise Him. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Sometimes it's just annoying Let people with flip-flops on praise the Lord. Let budding trees praise the Lord. Let little lizards who are running around in your front yard praise the Lord. Let people who don't have any hair on their head anymore praise the Lord. Let people who haven't had a shower in a while praise the Lord. Let even Democrats praise the Lord. You see, the Bible is always telling people to do this because it's the rightful call of someone who's made to image this God who is so extraordinarily good. Now, the problem is that praise doesn't come easy to us because we're people who very quickly get, as you might say, all ate up with ourselves. It's hard to praise another person or to praise a God or to praise a thing if you are not humble. If you're only thinking about yourself, if you think of everybody you meet as a rival to you, or you think of God as a rival to you, you will not be able to praise anyone or anything. You realize Part of what Peter's recognizing is this, this selection that has happened to you. You've been chosen not because your choice, but because the God of the heavens and the earth singled you out to do something spectacular with you, that ought to make you the kind of person that says, holy cow! Who am I? That I get to be on this team! And you're the kind of person who's training yourself to notice what God's up to in the world and to praise Him. To notice when God is seeing things, you just train yourself to start spotting God working on the earth. You're called to declare praises. One of the commercials that came on during the Super Bowl this week was one that, when it started, it just flashed across the screen. Paul Harvey. Many of you have seen this, and if you didn't see it, you saw it later, and somebody sent it to you on an email. And on the 8th day... God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker. So God made a farmer. I need somebody to to get up to before dawn, milk cows, work in the fields all day, milk cows again, eat supper, and then go down on town. Save past midnight at a meeting of the school board. So God made a farmer. And on and on he went. 
extolling these forgotten people, the strength and the tenderness wed, the integrity and the sacrifice, the, the painstaking toil and the astonishing compassion all swirled together in a common life, the kind of life that's easily forgotten. And he extolled it. He, he praised it. And at the end of the commercial, I said to Kathy and the boys and those sitting around us, this, and I don't mean to be hyperbolic, and if you don't remember your English words, like, I don't mean to be overly exaggeratory here, but I think that might be the best commercial I've ever seen in my whole entire life. It was flipping awesome, as they say in Greek. And Peggy Noonan wrote an article, an editorial this week in the Wall Street Journal, in which she noted what was so refreshing about this. Is that Paul Harvey, many of you who are young, don't even know. For 40 years, he did this sort of thing on the radio to millions of listeners. And in an age where it has become increasingly easy to praise nothing and to mock everything, to be characterized by snark, assuming you always know what people's ulterior motives are, making sure you find the holes in things, making sure that you don't ever give anything any credit or anyone any credit, what's so doggone refreshing when you listen to Paul Harvey praise the farmer is that it's absent on that. There's a kind of humility that is just noticing something good and praising it. And when you see it, you go, oh my, it's moving, it's touching, it's exhilarating. It seems like that might be a good way to live. What if you walked around the earth and you saw people like he saw farmers? As not somebody who is primarily a scoundrel and someone who is primarily your competitor but as someone that you as a priest were introducing to God and they were introducing God to you. They were somebody that was wonderful because they were made in God's image, even if they weren't imaging Him very well. And most of us don't. You see, the idea that what I'm meant to pass down to my children, what I'm meant to pass down to everybody around me as a priest, is that I'm someone who declares praises of God. And of course, that will be contagious if you're the kind of person who is humble enough to start to notice good things, humble enough to start to forget yourself. You will be able to notice the magnificence of God, which is not in competition with your magnificence. Your magnificence is a reflection of it. And all the wonders of all the people and all the talents all around you, they're not in competition with you either. They're all like you, reflecting that source of of all the magnificence called our God who has chosen us to be a kingdom of priests. And even if you find yourself in the position where you can't look up with praise, where you find it very hard to declare praise, because let's face it, in this room right now, if we had a confessional, you know, if you're all in your rooms and you're blogging and putting stuff on Facebook that you know only your closest friends and 400 million other people would read, if you were honest, do you know what would you would be able to say, is that most of you spend at least about 68% of your life in a funk. Is that accurate? 68 to 74%? It's not, it's not a Gallup poll, I just did it in my head. But 
it's very easy to look around your life and it's very dissatisfying. Some things are not turning out the way you want. Financially, things are not like you like. Your spouse is letting you down. Your friendships aren't going anywhere. You can't find a good job, etc., etc. Your body's not working right. But you know what happens when you're a priest? When you realize that I'm per- someone with whom God has had something to do and I'm representing Him and I'm called to declare a life of praise then it infects the way you even interact with God. Because even if you got nothing to praise Him about right now, you start praying to Him in such a way that He'll create something for you to praise Him about. You know Sojourner Truth? Did you read about her in a history book at one point? She was a leader in the abolition movement and a women's suffrage movement. Let's get in the boat. And here's a record of her praying at some point when her son had fallen ill she said oh God you know how I am distressed for I have told you again and again and again I love that you know how I'm distressed because I keep telling you now God help me get my son if I were in trouble as I am if I were in trouble as I am presently and I could help you as you can me. If I could help you as you can help me right now, you think I wouldn't do it? And she says, you know I would do it. If I could help you, God, if I was in a position to help you, God, right now, you know I would do it, just like you're in the position to help me. Now, some of you might say, well, that's sacrilegious. She's not being deferential. I say, that's someone who knows that like all priests, she's got insider access to God. You know, part of being a priest in the world is that priests could go where other people couldn't. They could go into the special rooms where God was specially present. And one of the magnificent declarations of the New Testament is that people who believe in Christ have now been given the same kind of open access to God. You know, like a little kid can disturb his dad in a board meeting with a text message or a call. He'll step out for the kid when he won't for nobody else. And if you believe that you're called to declare praise, that you are a priest representing God on the earth, then one of the things you'll do is when there's nothing to praise Him about or you can't see it, you'll start talking to God in such a way, God, you've got to create some praise here. You've got to alter the situation or you've got to alter me. She went on one time when she had fallen into hardship financially. Maybe she... I'm reading this in one of your journals. She said, God, I know that you know that I have no money. Has anybody anybody said that or thought that? You know I know... You know I have no money. And she says, but you can make the people do for me. And you must make the people do for me. And I will never give you peace until you do. Well, there you go. I have no money. I have got no body. But I know that you can do stuff. Because I've got insider access to you. And I've seen you do stuff in me. And I've seen you do stuff in the world. And I'm called to declare your praise. And I'm going to pester you. And we can't get into it now. There's a lot of places in the Bible where we're told to do that, you see. And you don't do it unless you really know what God's like. He doesn't mind this sort of thing. 
He likes people who trust him enough to expect him to do stuff. People who will interact with him. He'll say, make situations for praise. If you're going to be a priest, you've got to pass down this virtue of looking up, of praise, and praying the situations in which you can't look up, that God will make them so. And the other thing you've got to do is you've got to pass down this virtue of not looking down on others. Here's what Peter says. You're a people belonging to God that you may declare praises. Once you were not a people. Now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, one of the things that Peter wants to insist is that the thing that has constituted you as a people is that God has just had a lot of pity on you. Now, I don't know anything that's more assaulting to my pride, and I have plenty of it, and I'm sometimes told about it, and I'm sometimes able to just see it, and a lot of times I don't have any idea about it. But one of the things that's really hard to believe is if you start to think about, well, let's think about this. Think about how many people in your life that they have some quality about them, well, that's just, we'll say, annoying. They're cantankerous. They're, uh, they're whiny. They're greedy. They're, they're inflexible. They cry too easy. I don't know. Something. You have people in your life like that, don't you? And you know good and well that that's not the only thing about them. You just, you love them. You're merciful to them. You have compassion on them. You just are fond of them. And so you put up with that stuff. You don't love it. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Does this happen to any of you? Now, here's the thing. It can sometimes destroy you if you turn it around and think, all kinds of people are presently doing that to me. Like, oh, no, 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 no. I, I would like to be the kind of person who lives without needing anyone to show me any mercy or compassion or patience or forgiveness at any point. People like me because I'm so inestimably likable. Right? Isn't that what we think about ourselves? We show pity to other people, but everybody else is just liking us because that's what we warrant. When you're a magnificent person, people treat you as such. And of course, I don't know any other magnificent people. I'm showing mercy all the time, but no one's showing it to me. Oh, it makes me sick sometimes when I think, oh, goodness. I'm the last one in the room to know a thing about myself. You know, just like all you are. It's like you're walking around with, you know, spinach stuck in your teeth, big hunk of banana on your face, and you don't know. You're laughing and carrying on, and everybody sees it, and you don't see it. And they're being merciful to you because they love you. But it can really assault you and destroy you when you think about it real carefully. But of course, that's just your pride. It's the kind of thing that keeps you allergic to God. And so when you get with God and you start to know Him, and as a priest and you're supposed to reflect Him, you realize like, oh, everybody's in that boat with God. Even though we're all the last people to know about it, we're really not really that kind of wonderful people that God says, oh, look how wonderful they are. I think I'll pick them. No, it's more like, oh, look, there's a little mangy dog. It's got lice and mange and no, only the three legs and snaggletooth. 
it's useless really, but I think I love him. I'll make him part of my watchdog, Padre. And that's what God does to us. He says, I'll just have mercy on you because I do. I'll love you because I will. Okay. That is the truth about you and God. That's really the wonder about why we say this is good news, is that God looks at people like us and says, okay, I know all about you, and I know you better than you know yourself, and I I, I love you clean through, and I'm not going to turn my face away ever, 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 and I'm going to love you, and you can't make me not. That's what the cross has accomplished. That's what God has accomplished in sending His Son and raising Him from the dead. Now, Peter says, as priests, you're people who have received mercy. And that's the God that we serve. So what are we representing to the world? Since priests represent God to the world and the world back to God, what are we representing to the world? And I would say we've got to learn the practice of not looking down on people. We're people of mercy who have not been treated as we deserve. So that means there is not a situation that you know about right now. Think about something politically, socially, relationally. Some public figure or some person who lives in your house. Somebody who's in the cubicle next door to you or some customer of yours. There's somebody that you know good and well that they need to change and fast or else. Right? You almost take delight in hoping that God's going to strike them someday. No, none of you would do that. But that person, it might be your son or it might be your husband, it might be your boss, it might be your mama. That person is someone that God means for you to broker His mercy to. To show and say, this is what kind of God God is. Slow to anger, abounding compassion. Slow to anger, abounding compassion. Delights to show mercy. He delights to let people off the hook. He delights to not give people what they deserve. He delights to do it. It actually makes him happy, and our God gets happy. When we represent him, are we looking down? See, if you start to look up enough and praise and realize what God has done and how he's shown this stuff to you, here's what happens. All the people around you that you know need to change, and be honest, aren't there people around you you know all the ways that they need to change? What they need to stop doing and what they need to start doing? You can say, well, that may be. It's a good thing I'm just a priest of God and not God himself. And as a priest, my call is to deal gently with those who are going astray. Because I know myself that I am subject to weakness. I'm called to be gentle with others and to be merciful to others because there are certain kinds of things that people can never see about themselves until God rips the blinders off. There are certain kinds of things that people cannot hear until God unplugs their ears. It's a good thing I know that because that happened to me. So fortunately, I don't have to walk around my house when everything's not right and scowl and grumble and get my sideways comments in to make sure I'm jabbing people just right to make sure they know how they need to change. Because that's not up to me. I am a priest of God. Representing God as someone who's received much mercy and I'm called to be merciful. I don't have to look down on people. I'm not their judge. I'm neither President Obama's judge nor Kathy Youngblood's judge. I'm not my children's judge. I'm not your judge. I am a person who's received mercy 
And I'm called to now reflect that mercy in the world. And so are you. What are we passing down? A life of looking up and a life of not looking down. And lastly this. You're passing down a life of being a commercial for God. We started with commercials, we'll end with them. You're passing down a life of being a commercial for God, which is to say a life of representing Him, which is what a priest does. And he goes on, verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that He visits us. You know what a commercial is supposed to do? I'm not a marketing guy. Some of you are. Sorry if I'm getting it wrong. It seems to me that what a commercial is supposed to do, if it's done well, is it's supposed to get you talking about and thinking about and creating certain impressions and feelings toward a certain kind of product. And when they're done well, it works. You talk about it later. And so Peter very much is intending on the same kind of thing happening. Let your life be so sterling and sparkly with Jesus. Let there be a certain kind of goodness that emanates out of you because you're representing Him and not just yourself. That folks see it and they start talking about and thinking about God in a different kind of way. Steve Brown used to say to us, professor at seminary, preaching professor, he would say, do not ever tell people that you are a preacher. But if they find out, don't let them be surprised. Don't ever tell them you're a preacher, but if they find out, don't let them be surprised. Because he knew, as I found out, when you tell people you're a preacher, people weird out on you all of a sudden like, they, they don't think you're human anymore. They, they think that when they cuss in front of you, that you're going you're gonna to suddenly melt like a witch who has water thrown on her. And I think, I can cuss better than you can. I'm just That's a joke. It's, it's kind of a joke. But you know, see, people weird out when they, when they, they just have all these associations with religious people and you hear them telling you're a pastor or whatever. So he says, don't tell them. But if they find out, don't let them be surprised. And I think the same kind of advice could be said to y'all. You're not preachers, but you are all a kingdom of priests who are called to represent God to the world and to reflect back God's praise to the world. And so, in a very real sense, you could say, you don't have to go around saying, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. But if people find out, don't let them be surprised. In fact, when they meet up with you, it ought to be occurring to them, hey, I wonder, maybe God's different than I thought. You know, one of the things that's happened to me now, when, I, when I'm driving down Broad Street and I see somebody in a Volkswagen, I'll say to Kathy, don't the people in the Volkswagen just seem so happy? I mean, they just seem so happy. They just seem so lighthearted. They're in their, their, you know, their cute little glasses and their tussled hair, and they just seem like they're just... I'm not talking about anybody for people. They just seem so in love with the world. Things just seem to be going their way. And you know... Okay, I'm not totally... You know, I'm, 
But you know what's happened? Volkswagen's marketing campaign has worked its mojo on me. I associate certain things with these cars. What if, because you have been selected to be God's representatives on the earth to reflect to people what he's like, if people came into contact with you and they started to say, oh, so that's what it's like. If God were teaching a classroom, that's the way there would be this wedding of strength and tenderness. Oh, children growing up. Oh, that's what it's like when, when people have an argument and they get back together. They humble themselves. They, they fight for reconciliation. Oh, that's what God's like if he were a mom or a dad. Oh, that's what God's like if he's running a board meeting, if he's running a sales team, if he's working for a client. The kind of work that he does. The kind of good that he produces. Oh! You see, you're creating impressions. You're creating a sense. That's what God's like. See, that's what God intended when he took you into his ownership. That you go out into the world and give people a flavor. This is what God is like. This is what God is like. That's why David Hansen can say, you know what? It's awfully hard for lonely people, for instance, to believe that God loves them if not one person who goes by the name Christian will actually visit them. There's this recognition that we're carriers of God. So we've got to be in the places where we think God would want to be. And we've got to work in the kind of way we think God would want us to work. We've got to manage our bodies and our sexuality not in the ways we think is good, in the way that God says is good. Because we're reflecting Him. Because we are representing Him. And we're called to live such good lives among the pagans that they see it and they go, oh, oh, maybe He's real. Maybe He's up to stuff. Maybe He even changes around people like this. Christianity Today had an article this week about a lady who was a leftist, lesbian professor. And she started her article saying this, I used to have the word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't get it out. She talks about how she was embracing this lifestyle that she had nothing but pity and wrath for Christians. Pity for how stupid they were. Wrath for their self-righteousness. And in 1997, she wrote this article in a publication about the unholy trinity of Jesus, the Republican Party, and patriarchy. See, she hated Jesus and Republicans and men. And so she wrote this article. And she got a magnificent response to this article, so big that she had Xerox boxes on either side of her desk. For the one box was the hatred, the hate mail, which you can imagine. These are the, well... Hate mail, Christians, floods, Republicans, Christians, and men. Writing these things and hating. And then they got the people saying, you go girl, patting her on the back. We love it. Awesome. Get them. She had a box full of love and a box full of hate. And she said, but I got one letter. I got one letter that defied my filing system. I couldn't figure out where it went. And this is the magnificent part. I said magnificent a hundred times a day. I don't know why. This is the great part. It was from a pastor from the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. 
And she said, as all Reformed Presbyterians would do, he wrote a kind and inquiring letter. His name was Ken Smith. And Ken Smith encouraged me to explore the kind of questions that I admire. He said, how, do you, how did you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know that you're right? Do you believe in God? She said, he didn't argue with my attitude. He rather asked me just to defend my suppositions, my thoughts, my, my foundational beliefs that undergirded them. I didn't know how to respond to anything he said, so I threw the letter away. It's great. That's how we handled that. Get that out of here. He did not mock. He engaged. And she said, the other thing was he invited me to dinner. And so he and his wife had me, who had written this horrible letter against all the things that he stood for, they had me to their house for dinner. And then they became my friends. And they entered into my life, and we exchanged books together, and we talked about sexuality, and we talked about politics, and they never acted like my conversations with them were polluting them. They never acted like my conversations with them were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. You know, somebody that could just impose their beliefs on. When we ate together, Ken, see, he was a priest. Not just a preacher, but he was somebody who knew God. He had insider access. Ken prayed in a way I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate and vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. His God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. I think we just heard about that. And then, she says, after a long period of time, I started reading the Bible and I had this terrifying thought, what if this stuff is true? What if Jesus really is the resurrected Lord? What if I'm going to be judged? What if, what if I've made the mistake of thinking that my sexual desires and preferences are a foundation for an identity? Which is the most convoluted thing on the planet Earth. What if Jesus could give me an identity? What if He who broke death could tell me who I was? And she said, one ordinary day, I came to Jesus open-handed and naked. Ken was there, his wife, and the church who had been praying for me for years. Jesus triumphed. And I was a broken mess. Conversion for me was a train wreck. I didn't want to lose everything I loved. But the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. You know what's amazing about that story? She's actually the pastor's wife now. Some in Durham, North Carolina. She said, I believe that Jesus, if he could conquer death, he could make right my world. You know how all that started? Because in the midst of all the noise, the Christians telling her how wicked she was and the the people who had her party spirit telling her how right she was, there was one dude who defied her filing system. We'll call him a Christian. Because that's what Christians do. They defy the filing systems. He was a person who had been trained as a priest. Not as a preacher, as someone representing God. He knew Him. He had inside access, so he prayed to Him. He repented before Him. He knew He lived by mercy. He practiced looking up. He refused to look down on others. And he realized he was a commercial. A commercial 
for the God who wants to make the world right. And he wants a great big incoming of people who know their left hand not, nor their right hand, but need lots and lots of mercy just like you and I do. He defied her filing system as a priest of God, living to declare the praises of him who would call him out of darkness into light. Go out to the world. Live such good lives that you defy people's filing systems too. In the name of Jesus, amen.